I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring email. Today, we sit down with Verena Von Fetten of Gossamer, a stylish brand for the aesthetically minded cannabis user. Launched in 2018, Gossamer is an illustration of the modern cannabis culture. As the industry has continued to expand, Verena noticed the obvious, that it's still predominantly exclusive to white, wealthy male entrepreneurs. And in creating Gossamer, she set out to throw a hammer through those stereotypes while gifting people with a new cannabis perspective. We're happy to have her here with us talking about the blueprints for the brand, breaking down the direction of the cannabis industry, and sharing her story. As always, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. Red Receipt. Red Receipt. Are you from the New York area originally? I'm not. I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada, um, but I have lived in New York for a little over 19 years now. I moved here in August of 2001. Um, so I technically have lived in New York longer than Vancouver and where I'm from. And what brought you to, to New York originally? Yeah, I moved for college. Um, so I went to school in the city uh, and then I very fortuitously was born with dual citizenship. My parents are both German, um, but my mom immigrated to the U.S. before Canada. She actually worked uh, at a beer garden at the World's Fair in like 64, I think, in New York. Um, and there's like a great little treaty between Canada and the U.S. that if you are born with in Canada with an American mother, you get both passports. Um, oh, wow. And so I stayed and just never left. That is crazy. I didn't know about that yeah yeah it's a it's a weird thing and i always feel like extra loophole because both of my parents are also german you know like i'm like not really either canadian or american but you know <laughs> uh i'll take it and yeah i just have never left have never wanted to um i love canada vancouver is an incredible place to be from and certainly to grow up uh i caveat that by saying that like the last few months and looking ahead to the upcoming years is like the first time truly in my like 20 years of living in New York that I've been wondering if it's time to make a return to Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a crazy time. Yeah. And Vancouver yeah. is also amazing. Yeah, it's a good city. Um, people have a great quality of life. I always just don't know what I would do there. I mean, now that everything is remote, it feels a lot more reasonable, but it's just, it's like a really outdoorsy city. Like, the the business there is like yes there's a ton of tech it's also like a ton of like entertainment in hollywood and then it's like commodities um there's not really like a huge like creative or media or um brand scene there um so i just it never made sense to me but maybe now and uh what were you studying in school when you moved to new york i yeah 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 well i majored in english and minored in creative writing um i took a really roundabout way to end up exactly where I thought I wanted to be. Um, so I went to school, I went to Columbia, um, thinking I wanted to work at magazines. Um, well, sort of that or getting a, uh, a PhD and, and being an English professor. I'm very <laughs> glad I, I dodged that bullet, um, by just not ever following through with anything. Um, but I, uh, 
I thought, so then I said, okay, I want to work in, in magazines um, and interned uh, at Condé Nast in college was an absolutely horrendous, abysmal intern. Like I'm really public about this because I want like people to learn from my mistakes and also know it's not the end of the world. If you're like maybe a little bit of a college fuck up and don't know what you're doing. Um, Cause I truly had no idea. Um, Canada doesn't, it's a very different system from here in the state. Like I had never heard of an internship. Um, I, I remember my sophomore year, my roommate was like, so what intern, you know, where are you interning this summer or this, this year? And I was like, what's an internship? She's like, oh my God, you have to get one. Otherwise you're never going to get a job. And you're never going to graduate. And like your life is over. Um, and so I promptly went out and like applied and got one and just didn't give a shit. I didn't know. I didn't try. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> the longer story than I meant it to be, but I will say I was such a terrible intern um, that I didn't even know when the program ended. And I was in a program with a bunch of other, like largely seniors, like young um, college, like about to be graduates who were really angling for a job. And I think I was kind of like a flake and annoying. And I, you know, they, they wanted me like out of the way because they were all looking for jobs. And I wasn't paying much attention. So one day I was like, oh, by the way, do you guys know when this ends? And they were all like, oh yeah, next week is the last week of it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, you know, went into the office that following week and it was largely empty because I think everyone was out on a shoot. Um, I was interning on the floor and split time between International Vogue's offices at the time and Modern Bride. And I wandered around for a while and like, there was no one really there. I eventually like, I think I did some organizing in the closet and then I just like left my badge on the desk and left. Um, and it wasn't until this was probably in like April. It wasn't until later that summer, like July ish, I was dog sitting for someone in the West village and I was crossing the street and the internship coordinator <laughs> passed me on the crosswalk and was like, Verena, is that you? I was, you know, like, Hey, yeah, it is. And she was like, what happened to you? You just stopped showing up. Like we just didn't see you for the last four weeks of the program. Um, which I think should have sent a flag up to like the powers that be at Condé to like check on me and make sure I wasn't, you know, yeah. dead somewhere. Um, but anyways, they never uh, even looked into it. Never even called me, never emailed, never asked where I was, nothing. And I just stopped showing up and I thought it was the end. And that, that was that. So no, I never got a recommendation from that um, internship. <laughs> I mean, um, internships honestly, are like, kind of weird in general. Like the idea that you have to get a job that you really don't get paid for, or at least really poorly paid for. And then you yeah. don't even really do much. Uh, like yes. the fact that I that's a prerequisite is, is weird. Yeah. I mean, it's hugely problematic. And, you know, I'm being somewhat like self-effacing by saying I was like, a flake. I kind of was, but I also like, I was on, you know, financial aid and student loans. I was working like three to four shifts in a restaurant in addition to going to school, in addition to like, you know, getting an internship. And so the internship was just like the bottom priority for me. You know, that was yeah. like, I needed money and I needed to go to school. Um, and so, to, to this day, uh, and, and I'm glad that there's a larger conversation happening about it, but I, I do think interns, internships are largely problematic. Um, they should absolutely be paid. Um, one of, you know, my sort of favorite fun facts that I have to credit with my partner, who is a former academic who did end up getting a PhD um, and, and studied this, but that the history of internships, like they were always meant to be 
they were paid jobs. They were not like work for free. So you might get a job. They were on the force training. They started on, um, as a program with the railroad tracks, with train conductors, internships were like, here is how we teach a train conductor, how to conduct a train. And this is an internship. And then we will give you a full-time job, all of which is paid. And that has become like totally bastardized into work for free until, you know, someone deigns to like maybe give you some sort of entry level $25,000 a year position. And, and it, it, it really messes with who has access to those jobs and, and why. Yeah. I also just think it sets up a relationship in like the worst way possible. Like that you're, <laughs> you initially like have no value. Yeah. And then I'm going to like literally no value. Yeah, like we're not paying you. Your time is worth nothing. To us. Yeah. Nothing. You don't have much to give and I'm going to teach you anything that you do have to give. And then maybe by the end you'll be worth something to us. Yes. But it yes. only will be a few. Yeah. The rest yeah, are it's worth like the hunger game. Yeah. 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 That is so weird. Uh, what, what career path did you end up taking after that? <laughs> I swore off magazines. Um, and truly, like a like a you know twenty year old idiot who was like, I know everything, and magazines are the worst. Um, and I decided to focus on. I had always had an interest in fashion. Um, I decided to focus on the business side of it. Um, and I say this, you know, focus. Twenty two. I graduated. I started working for a jewelry designer as an account executive. Spent a lot of time in Excel doing like merchandising and orders and um, a lot of time on the road traveling to accounts and um, you know managing those relationships and it was fine I liked it um, I was pretty good at it uh, but I was also just like largely kind of bored day to day and I and I had always thought that I would write on my own time um, and like keep writing as a creative pursuit um, and about a year and a half so maybe my second year out of college into that um, I just realized I missed it so much. And I was, you know, other than when I was in Excel, I was spending all day reading like blogs. Um, I graduated in 2005. So this was also, I don't want to say pre-internet, but it was definitely like pre-internet as a job. Um, and certainly pre like writing on the internet as a job. You know, I think Gawker launched in 2004. Um, there was a handful of like celebrity blogs that were largely like nascent, even like Pop Sugar. Like it was like Lisa Sugar's blog um, back then. So I was reading these things, but it didn't occur to me that I could ever like have a career um, in that space. But I ended up pitching something to the Huffington Post, um, I think in like early 2007, um, when the Huffington Post had maybe like literally two pages. It was like a homepage and a blog roll for anyone that remembers this. This is when websites had one page. <laughs> it was the homepage. Um, and uh, that just sort of like, you know, snowballed. And I ended up writing a column there for a little over a year. I wrote one to two um, columns a week. Um, and I ended up uh, ending that year as like, I think the third most read blogger on the site, which was weird and wild because they had like Jon Stewart also writing, you know, it was like when Ariana was just tapping all of her celebrity friends. Um, I think part of that was like the novelty of just having like a young female writer on a site that was largely had a largely male audience um, of like super like politically minded, you know, men who just also wanted to dunk on me. Um, 
and I was writing uh, about spirituality because that was a precursor to Ariana's, um, you know, what she now runs, which is Thrive Global. Um, and I always say this, that most people think of Ariana Huffington as, you know, someone who's really like quickly minded. She like spirituality and wellness is her like number, number, number one, and always, always was. Um, so that ended up being parlayed into a full-time job at the Huffington Post. Um, so, you know, I did side work for about a year and a half for free. They didn't pay me. Um, cause again, no one pays anybody. Uh, so they should, <laughs> and I don't encourage other people to do it. It worked for me cause I wasn't writing anywhere else. Um, you know, like that, that became almost like my blog outlet. So I, it didn't occur to me that I should be paid for it. Um, and you know, I sort of fell into a job there in 2007, which, you know, um, was really, I think like very, very early days of like digital media. Um, I think I was the 20th employee. Um, and I spent two years there with a bunch of other 20 somethings who were like figuring out how to write and publish content online, um, and, and how to make a business out of it. So it was a lot of like throwing everything against the wall and figuring out what sticks and like truly 18 hour days. I mean, I, I, I think the only reason it was a bunch of 20 year olds is like the work was so nonstop that anyone like above the age of 26 would not have survived it. (laughs) And yeah, and that, that's sort of it. And then, you know, coming out of that in 2009 was like every magazine and their mother was like, Oh, we need a website. Have you heard of this? You know, um, (laughs) we, right now we have a landing page that sells subscriptions, but we need to put things on the website. Can we hire you to do that for us? And there were only really like, you know, I probably less than a hundred people who like had done that in any capacity in New York city for like a long time. Um, and that just sort of, you know, that was where my career started. So I spent the next 12 years, I guess, um, either like launching or overseeing websites for, um, different media properties, 90% of which do not exist anymore. (laughs) Um, because they're all done and closed and out of business. (laughs) I don't know what that says about me, Um, but I think anyone who's worked in media for that long, like 90% of the places they've worked don't exist anymore. That is so crazy to even think about. I'd imagine being in such a fast-paced environment, uh, you learned a ton. And also being in a fast-paced environment where everything's so new and also there's only 20 people on staff when you started, what do you feel like you learned from working oh with God. Ariana or being or in that environment that you've like taken on in life in general? Uh, so uh, honestly, so much. Um, I, I, in some ways absolutely hated that job. I was super, super miserable. Um, but I have <laughs> like, I, I would not be where I am today if I had not had that job. And frankly, like some of my best friends to this day are from that. My business partner and co-founder David Wiener and I, we met at the Huffington Post. Um, so a lot of good things. Um, I, I think one, <laughs> well, two, it was like without realizing it at the time. And I think really very much only in hindsight, I already sort of said this, it was a lot of like throwing everything against the wall and seeing what stuck. Um, and I think that approach, you know, within reason, um, you know, it's a version of like pivot and iterate, whatever, but like, just the idea of like trying something and not being super precious. Um, I think that first instant moment where I realized like you had, you had an instant response, like you could put something up and then within 
five minutes, figure out if it was working or not. And then you could change it. Um, that sort of responsiveness, um, you have no choice, but to learn on the job and start to absorb those lessons. So that was definitely one. Um, I mean, I think two, I mean, I started as, you know, an associate editor, every section had two full-time staffers an editor and an associate editor. And then I eventually was the editor of the living section that meant literally everything that meant writing, editing, you know, uh, I had over like 70 contributors that I worked with and managed all their, um, you know, their pieces. I also worked on the ad sales side. I did all the photos and photo editing and selection. So like from the beginning, and David and I sort of say this a lot, that like our very first job entailed doing absolutely everything, like the money, the art, the writing, the creative, the marketing, the business development, the partnerships, like, you know, should I be partnering with, should the living section be partnering with like L magazine or women's health, or is there a brand? All of that, you know, was like, they just threw you in and said, figure it out. So I feel like it was very entrepreneurial from the beginning. Um, and I think that sort of streak has stuck with me everywhere else I've worked. Yeah. Did, would you guys literally like throw up articles or pieces, learn from the reactions and then change them on the fly? Ab- absolutely. There, like, And I say this saying that with like the full knowledge that that is a terrible practice, but <laughs> we, we didn't know, you know, we didn't, no one told us, like none of us had gone to journalism school, um, <laughs> maybe a handful later that they eventually hired. Um, and a lot of this was like, you know, we were still linking out, like it was largely a homepage where we were just like pushing people to other articles. So it was constantly like, this is a good story, but it's not, it's not getting clicks. Why not change the photo, change the headline, change the placement, change the slug. Um, you know, that, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I say this too, that, you know, I, I haven't been in-house anywhere in probably three or four years. So this is slightly out of date, but I swear to God that three or four years ago, the technology that, you know, brands and publications were using, whether it's like Chartbeat and Google Analytics and all of it, like all of that was like still just barely scratching in my mind, the analytics system we had at the Huffington Post. Like it was, it you know, it was backed based off of Google Analytics, but largely in-house built and just so much information in real time and in a really, really visual and clear way. Um, you know, that has, that, that two years still put me heads and tails above people like a decade later who were like, you know, learning how to read Parsley or something like that. And I, I know that's all side of sort of insider baseball, but um, you know, when you talk about a world in which everything is run online, like analytics are, you know, I think part of most people's jobs, no matter where you work at this point. Yeah, for sure. And what, how did you, so how did you transition your career into where you are today and what was like the original mm-hmm. idea or impetus to even yeah. do so? So, uh, my career while was, while it was still focused on like digital media, um, I started honestly in like 2012, um, looking around and realizing that advertising was not a sustainable business model for media. Um, certainly not digital media. And at that point, um, Condé was reaching out to me, which is hilarious after my like one and only um, conversation or, you know, experience there about they were looking for someone to head up the digital side of um, now defunct Lucky magazine. Um, Lucky was a Condé title, uh, women's shopping magazine. Um, Truly, truly beloved, super niche, but like I mean, not super niche, but relative to Condé titles, like it was definitely the smallest by far, but really, really beloved, just had this like incredibly dedicated audience. 
um, and had always been plagued by rumors that it was going to get shut down. Like it wasn't making money. No one cared. Like every month it was like, Lucky's going to get shut down. Um, and when they reached out um, and said they were looking for someone to head up the digital side of things, they sort of, you know, had laid the groundwork that they were really interested in starting to explore um, a content to commerce model. Um, and that was really, really interesting to me because I just said, you know, advertising's not working. Um, and we've got to figure out another way for people to be able to read the things that they want to read and for people to be able to create that content and like survive doing it. Um, and I also just generally love an underdog. Um, like I, you know, I feel like there is the most flexibility. Um, you can try something. They'll let you try everything and see what sticks versus like somewhere like Vogue, you know, they want you to work in their very clear framework that for them worked for forever. Um, you know, I think I would argue it clearly stopped working at a certain point and they're very, very late to fix it. Um, but the underdog is where like you can come in and try and change things up. So I got excited about that with Lucky and, you know, the other side was like, okay, so maybe they fold. Like if I take this job and three months later, they do shut down. Like it was happening before I got there. It's not going to be my fault. Um, and the best case scenario is that, you know, maybe I help save it or help keep it alive a little longer. Um, it's a long-winded answer to say that I really got interested in the commerce side of things and the commerce side of, of media, which I think brought me a lot closer to brand building. Um, so I spent three years at Lucky and I oversaw the launch of Lucky Shops, which was Condé's first attempt at a wholly integrated um, content to commerce platform. We held inventory and fulfilled everything as well. Um, it was not like a dropship model. It was not like what they tried to do with style.com. It predated that. Um, and I fucking loved it. I mean, I loved the team. I loved everything we did there. Um, it died a very slow and agonizing and, you know, <laughs> ignoble death. Um, and I had like severe professional PTSD for, you know, probably a year and in some ways probably still do, um, after it. Uh, but I learned so, so, so much. Um, and again, this was, you know, relatively early in the cycle of like content to commerce. Um, so I sort of walked out of that understanding what worked and what didn't. Um, and you know, the thing I, I, I love to say is also it did work. Like the content to commerce model at Lucky worked. We were just saddled with a publication um, that people love, but was losing $2 million a month. And there's no world in which like a digital entity that quickly is going to make up that, um, that deficit. Um, and this is, you know, what a lot of publications and print publications are looking at. So I spent about three years consulting, mostly in that space. I worked with um, Instagram. I worked with Man Repeller. Um, I worked with Into the Glass and Glossier, ASOS, basically all brands, platforms, and publications that um, were already integrating those two pieces, um, like how to, how to read and purchase or how to turn your readers into consumers and your consumers into readers. Um, and also feeling very strongly that I would never go back to a full-time job. Um, and also if I did, or the next thing I did, I would also make sure that I was not, um, there wasn't a man above me on the masthead making all the money, uh, because that was another takeaway I took from, um, my time at Condé, which was that, you know, a lot of these editors in chief who did everything and like poured their blood, sweat, and tears into businesses that were run, you know, in some ways out of their control, but then they became, 
the expendable piece. And I, and it, it really just watching that over and over again, while like a bunch of men in suits on the sea level who like really kind of didn't actually do anything like took home paychecks. Um, it just, I was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to work, um, somewhere where, you know, I'm expendable and someone else walks away with a paycheck. Um, so I decided I wanted to start my own thing and I wasn't entirely sure what segment it was going to be in. I knew I wanted something that had content something that could ultimately have, you know, products or experiences or some sort of secondary way to monetize. Um, and that would get me excited. And at that point I was working on a consulting project with David Wiener, my co-founder who I met at the Huffington Post, um, who was also, I think he was at the time like consulting back at Condé. Um, and he asked me if I'd ever thought about doing something in the cannabis space. Um, we had smoked a lot of weed together, uh, you know, over the course of like 10 or 12 years. Uh, and I sort of like looked at him and I was like, you're, you've got to be out of your mind. You know, like, yes, that sounds cool. And like, you go feel free to pursue that. But like, that's career suicide for me. You know, why um, did this you was, think that? I mean, this was 20... 15, um, maybe 2016, California hadn't even legalized yet. Um, and I just felt like it was hugely stigmatized. I think at that point I actually was consulting back at Condé and I had, um, you know, a couple big meetings there and I just was envisioning walking in and saying like, thank you. I'm going to have to wrap up my contract. I've just started, you know, I've decided to start my own business in cannabis and like, <laughs> just like picturing what the faces and at that point the faces would have been like excuse me you know um and i i, I think at the time it, it's still true um i'm very comfortable talking about it now but i wasn't um and i think for women it's a, a much harder thing to say you know i think women get judged um more by the idea that they're like a quote unquote stoner and then i say that knowing that like you know people of color get judged even more than white women for saying that they smoke weed. So there, there's this slippery slope of who gets to participate in this economy and who gets to do so comfortably. Um, but that, that was the reason I was like immediately saying no. Um, but I went home that night and sort of thought about it some more. And the more I thought about it, the more angry I got, um, because, you know, I've smoked weed on and off since I was 13, um, for better or for worse. Uh, I'm from Vancouver, like, you know, that is very much part of the culture there. Um, British Columbia has like a very, very robust uh, cannabis um, cannabis culture and, and, and growing um, community. And it, but it wasn't something I felt like I could ever talk about. And I felt like I was successful. I had a really strong professional network. Um, you know, I, I, I'm super type A, if anything, like, I think I'm really, really driven. And it, started to really like great on me the more I thought about it the idea that I could say to a boss or to a colleague like oh I had a terrible day yesterday and I like went home and drank a martini and now I'm like hung over and no one would bat an eyelash but to have that same conversation and say you know I nibbled an edible took a bath and went to bed and that's like illegal and could get me fired um and so and then you feel perfectly <laughs> fine and work. feel perfectly yeah. fine. Yeah. Like I slept like a baby and like bright eyed and bushy tailed yeah. and like ready to perform. Um, so, so that, you know, that was my initial, like, okay, actually there's something here. Um, and I want to prove all these people wrong. Um, and I just, you know, realized from myself as a consumer, you know, I had spent my entire career largely marketing to women. Um, you know, that's what, 
the lifestyle world is, even if you're on the editorial side, it is marketing. You're telling people, you know, what to buy, where to buy it, how to wear it, what to eat, what restaurants to go to, what books to read. Um, and I put that much like care and thought into the things that surround me and the brands that I engaged with. Um, and then I looked at like weed, which is, had probably been one of the most consistent aspects of my life. And I was like smoking out of a pipe. I got on St. Mark's when I was 18 in 2001. Um, and you know, whatever my guy would show up with once a month when I ordered, I was like, wait, that's, that's wild. Like I should by all accounts be a dream consumer. You know, I was 30 something with like disposable income and, you know, willing to spend if you tell me a good story. And, uh, and there was nothing. Um, and there was also nothing that felt really, really smart and engaging. I think at that time on the publication and the media side of things, you know, there was still high times. Um, and then there were a couple things popping up, all of which I think serve a very real audience, but they didn't serve an audience of women. They didn't serve an audience of young professionals. Um, they didn't serve, I would argue, a diverse audience. Um, you know, cannabis is like hugely um, nonpartisan. Um, you know, people think of it as like this liberal thing, um, not to bring politics into it, but just to like hammer home the point that like at people across every line smoke weed, like political lines, socioeconomic lines, um, you know, racial lines, backgrounds, all of it. Um, and everything was just so focused on this white male consumer and everything was so focused on weed, 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 weed. Um, and I'm a regular high, you know, high functioning consumer and I don't care that much about weed, but I incorporate it into my life. Um, and so David and, and David felt the exact same way. And we just started saying like, I think every, not everyone, but like, there's an opportunity to look at something a little bit differently. And so instead of saying, we're going to build a platform and a publication and yes, hopefully a larger brand um, in the cannabis space about weed, um, we're going to build something that is for people who smoke weed. Um, and, and I think that's a very distinct, um, that's, a, that's a big difference. And that's also where the tagline came from. You know, the idea of our tagline for Gossamer is for people who also smoke weed. And it was for people who smoke weed, but aren't defined by it. You know, it means like you do, if, if I were introducing myself to you before I worked in, in the space, the fact that I smoke weed would be somewhere I probably would never even mention it. You would never know it about me. There's all these other things that that would come to define who I was to you. Um, and and we would be at the bottom, but it's still a part of my life. So how do we tap into that consumer? Um, and how do we sort of engage with the reasons they, they have a relationship to cannabis? Um, and for us, that was a sense of curiosity and open-mindedness, a willing to look at things from a different perspective. Um, there is, I think, a, a, a huge amount of intimacy that is formed when you share a joint or get high with someone. Like you're sort of willing to put yourself in this, like, you know, even a little bit paranoid space where you're feeling maybe a little insecure and like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Am I being weird? Am I being funny? Am I, you know, not making any sense? Um, and and that's huge. That's so powerful. Like I can't think of another experience. Like it's not certainly not sharing a glass of wine. It's not like going shopping with someone. It's not reading the same book as someone um, that like immediately fosters that sense of like, we're in this together, or I'm willing to sort of like kind of be this, this version of myself around you. Um, and then underlying that is the fact that it's stigmatized. So inherently sharing a joint with someone, no matter the fact that it is, you know, the conversation is getting easier to have, it's still illegal. It is still a federally illegal 
substance in this country. So you really don't necessarily know who you're talking to when you say like, yeah, let's go smoke a joint outside. Um, so that takes a willingness to be sort of open or, or to trust someone um, or to think that this person isn't going to judge you for it. Um, and, and that as like an organizing factor for a community, like that got me really, really excited. Like that, that was a very, very real thing that then would allow us to, you know, be super creative because what isn't a weed story then anything is like anything could be a gossamer story or a gossamer experience because it's just all about like the perspective through which you're looking at it. And so after you started thinking through the space and also realizing that you wanted to prove everyone wrong or change <laughs> yeah. or change the perception maybe how yeah. what was the idea at that point for the business model and how did you guys start to even work yeah. on developing it so um we knew we wanted gossamer to be big you know, like I'll say that, like, I want Gossamer to be a, a global brand. It's not yet. It's we're very, very small. And like, um, but I think there is a huge amount of potential and that's what we're working towards. Um, and when we, you know, we're thinking about a business model that made sense to us, um, I think also that felt sustainable. Uh, you know, we had both worked for a lot of startups, um, for a lot of venture backed companies, uh, and watched what that did um to a lot of companies uh and the totally unrealistic expectations um and and weight that it puts on a company and we were like okay how do we start to grow something organically and build something that had you know a really long-term growth opportunity but that wasn't super capital intensive um you know we didn't want to go out and raise a bunch of money um we did raise a little bit from friends and family um, to sort of bootstrap it and get it off the ground. Um, but that sort of immediately we were like, well, what do we both know? We know media. Um, you know, we know how to build communities through content. We know how to tell stories and we know how to, you know, um, create worlds that people want to engage in. Um, and so we said, okay, it's going to be media. Um, that's, that's our number one. That's like our bread and butter. That's what we care about. Um, but, cannabis the fact that it's in the cannabis space opens up a longer term opportunity whether that's products or experiences or whatever and in the meantime um we wanted to do two things or maybe three things um but <laughs> mainly we wanted one for people to really understand what gossamer was not just through a website or you know a typeface or a brand color um but through a physical object and um and then two, I really wanted people to immediately upon their first experience with Gossamer understand that we were making something of value that had a cost associated with it. Um, I think people have entirely lost sight that telling stories costs money. Um, and that's largely because of the way we consume them online. And now you're starting to see that change with a move back to subscriptions. You know, we're going exactly back to where we started, um, where people say, I want to pay for you to tell me these things. Um, and so we sort of said from the beginning, we wanted that piece of the puzzle and we wanted there to be like a really 
you know, a beautiful physical object that defined the Gossamer world. And that's why we said a print magazine. Um, the third piece, so the third thing that we thought about a lot was why people smoked weed in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, uh, we are all over um, saturated with news alerts and content and screens um, and phone time and all of it. And I have no doubt. I mean, I have no evidence. I'm not a scientist. I've not done any studies, but like, I have no doubt that like cannabis consumption is tied to that, you know, that you like come home and you need to like decompress. Um, and some people obviously do that through alcohol. I still love, I just had a cocktail earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it, but you know, it, it, it is a very different experience. Um, and we said, why it doesn't make sense for us to try and do this in a way that is at odds with someone's consumption um, and their consumption habits. So if we're going to create content around cannabis, like, yes, some people might want to like read things on the internet. And I certainly fall down like plenty of rabbit holes when I'm stoned and I obviously watch Netflix and whatever else. But the idea of like, of creating an object that in tandem with your relationship to cannabis allows you to sort of like cancel the world outside for a hot second. um, That felt really, really important to us. And it also, I think, mattered because we had built this playbook of how to get eyeballs to a website you know like i'll tell you right now if you hired me to like build a website for you tomorrow and get a million uniques in the first month i could do that um would they return probably not um would it cost a lot of money to get them back every single time yeah a hundred percent and so the idea of a magazine was like i can give you the magazine i can't make you read it that, that is like your final choice. And that to me signals that there is like a real active engagement with our reader and our audience. Um, and that's all every brand wants, right? All every brand wants is to say like, no, 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 we have a real community. Like, no, 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 they really care about us. Um, and the only thing I can say is that I know if someone has read the magazine and they say they've read it, there is nothing I could have done to make them read that. They read that by choice. And like, that means there is a genuine organic relationship between us. Um, And that was always going to be like the core of Gossamer and we would build out from there. And how did you guys start working on the brand and on launching the business? And what was that process um, even like? I mean, me being outside of media, like I work mostly with product-based brands and businesses that in essence like have a pretty simple business model they sell products yeah. and but they also have a marketing arm yeah and, and that brand know, and world it. helps like assist them selling products but at the end of the day yeah. the business model is pretty simple like i'm curious yeah. what it was like for you guys launching with a vision for more of like a dispersed uh output yeah. Outside of just objects. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we were both freelance consulting, so I, it was a real slow ramp, you know, like we probably spent two years just gradually ramping up to eventually both of us saying like, okay, we're now full-time on Gossamer. At first it was like an hour a week that we would meet and then two hours a week and three hours a week and then two days a week. Um, the, uh, we, how did we think about it from a business perspective? Um, I mean, like I said, we did raise some money from friends and family. So, you know, we ran some numbers. I, we, we, I took every call I could, every meeting I could, I say this, you know, whenever, I don't know if there's a question that's coming later, but whenever, when asked, whenever someone asks me, like, 
you know, what is your like number one tip for someone who's like interested in starting their own business? Um, I think you, it's being willing to ask questions and ask favors. Um, I have never had to get more comfortable with just constantly asking things of other people. Um, but that is the only way you're going to get anything that you might need, whether that's an answer, whether that's support, whether that's a check, um, whether that's like a business deal, like you have to ask and, and sometimes it's a favor and sometimes it's, you know, truly earned, but you have to ask for it. So we probably spent a year just like asking questions and trying to figure out like what made sense. I spoke to everyone I could find who had made a print magazine. You know, we had both worked at print publications, but not like this, um, not, you know, a truly independent publication and not one that, you know, weighs over a pound and (laughs) costs, you know, um, some hard earned cash to put together, um, and doesn't have like a team of 75 or 200 people working on it. Um, so we ran the numbers to try and figure out how much it could reasonably cost us to make the first issue without any advertising whatsoever. Um, we actually budgeted for the first year. So two issues that we would not make a penny. Um, so we were just trying to make sure we had enough money, um, to do that. And that's like kind of what we raised. Um, mostly because one, it felt like too much to try and figure out how to make a magazine and how to sell advertising against it and how to marry those two things together in a way that would be, um, I think as seamless and as good of an experience for the reader as we wanted it to be. And two, we felt like, if we could put something just purely unadulterated out um, with no concessions whatsoever, this is what a pure editorial Gossamer product looks like. Um, We would be coming at any ad conversations from from like a much stronger position, like for people to understand what our brand was, what we stood for, we would have a better sense of like then how to help someone market their brand, which is essentially what advertising is. Um, so, so that's largely where we focused. I mean, we were also just like looking and deep diving the cannabis space to understand like, you know, where the opportunities were, um, you know, what the sort of first movers were doing, whether that was working or not working. Um, I mean, frankly, that's still our business model, you know, and, and one of the things that we say is like, um, that's the benefit of having the magazine and this editorial property and this platform at our center is that we can continue to exist while everyone else figures out and makes, you know, all the mistakes in the world. And then when we're ready, we can do the things we want to do. Um, so, uh, that was like the first two years really to like getting the very, very first issue out. Um, you know, we started in like super organic beta mode. We we launched a private Instagram that we had friends follow and started like, you know, mood boarding and and building the, the, the brand world there. We did work with a creative director in Oakland, Indira Roja of Red Indie Studios, who is incredibly talented. Um, and she worked with us on brand design, visuals, um, you know, logo, all of it, because we felt really strongly, we wanted to have a very clear visual point of view. Um, and yeah, I mean, does that help with at least how we, how we got things out or yeah. started? Yeah. And when did you, when did you guys launch the products? So, yeah, I mean, this goes back to a little bit what I was saying. We, we launched our first, so the first, we launched the website in January of 2018 and our first issue came out in May of 2018. Our first product we launched in January of last year of 2019. We want, yeah, because we launched, it was about a year apart. So we had spent that year 
covering the CBD space. Cause it was something we, again, from like researching before we launched, like looking at the cannabis space and, and one of the things we quickly um, noticed, and this was probably in 2016, like that CBD was starting to bubble up um, largely, honestly, on like Reddit boards. Um, it wasn't something that was in like consumer average consumer conversation, but you know, these sort of like deep weed head Reddit boards were starting to talk about CBD as something that was federally available. Um, you know, at that point, like theoretically legal, um, it is, it is very legal now, but at the time it was just not illegal <laughs> is the best way I can describe it. Um, and, you know, starting to talk to, um, you know, professionals and scientists in the space about what CBD was and what the benefits were um, and watching all of these brands just like rush to market to get something out um, and, you know, doing a lot of curation for our readers of how to find a good product, um, what a good brand should stand for. You know, we were already starting to look at what it would mean for us to make our own products, which meant we were really covering the space with a, a ton of insight and transparency, you know, like it's the difference between an, another publication covering the CBD space and just having to kind of rely on what a brand tells them. And on the back end, you know, we were talking to their manufacturers. So like, not only did we understand what the brands were telling us, but we knew who was making their products. Um, and frankly, we knew that all of the products were being made by the same manufacturer and that all of these products were charging like wildly different price points because it was just, it's a brand play, right? It's the packaging and the name and however you want to position it. Um, but you know, CBD is not that expensive. Um, and nobody was doing anything different. The formulations were just the same. It was the same oil for this brand, this brand, this brand, this brand, all with a different packaging. Um, and watching that happen and seeing these brands also and this is true of every industry. It's true of the beauty industry, which I spent a lot of time in. Everything's white labeled, you know, like very few brands are really like making their own products. They're going to someone else and say, can you make this for me? And I'm going to put the packaging on it. Um, and, but then you see the stories they tell and they're like, you know, sourced from an organically, um, you know, family owned farm in the hills of Colorado. And I'm like, I know where you got this shit. And it's from this giant company that sells the same oil to everybody else. Like that's not true. Um, and so we were starting to get really, really frustrated. And I think we were being really candid in our coverage of just like, there are like three good brands and the rest are garbage and like stop paying for something that is, is unnecessary. Um, and at the same time, we were building up this, this trust with our audience of people saying like, okay, well, what do I buy? And what do I look for? And how do I figure out, you guys seem to know it, but like, how do you translate that to a consumer? Like, you know, how do I know what, where to spend my money? Um, and so we did a lot of that sort of consumer education and we still to this day recommend other CBD brands. Um, you know, I, I, I said this from my time at Lucky and certainly from Into the Gloss and Glossy and whatever else, like consumers don't, I, I, I have, I've, I'm not going to show you my desk, but it's hideous or this bureau, but like I have probably like 30 different products from 25 different brands, like in three square feet here. So the idea that any consumer is only ever going to shop one brand for the rest of their life is a totally insane thing for a brand to operate. Like that's a, that's a crazy perspective. And every brand under the sun acts like the consumer has never heard of their competitors. Um, and that's totally wild and makes no sense. That is pretty um, funny. <laughs> it, like it's hilarious they, they they pretend that if like if i don't say it they've never heard of them and like that that's not how it works um so we sort of said from the beginning and i'll, I'll say this forever that like 
my, the number one thing I care about is like my customer and my reader's experience. So I want you to have the best possible experience. I want it in the magazine. I want it in our content and I want it in the products you buy. And if that isn't from us, that's fine. I would still rather be the place that found you the product that makes you happy. Um, and so within that framework, one question that we kept getting was, um, I really need something for sleep and, and I'm not comfortable with THC or I'm not in a legal state or, you know, um, I, I just want something that's like easy for me to buy. And at that time we were starting to see all these CBD products marketed for sleep. And we were like, okay, well, here's another thing we know. CBD is not a sedative. Um, CBD doesn't actually help you sleep. It can help with anxiety. It can help with um, muscle pains. It can help with some of the things that might be hindering your sleep. But if you can't sleep, CBD is not going to put you to sleep. Um, and that, again, was also contributing to this like consumer feedback of CBD told me I could, like this brand told me CBD would help me sleep. I took it. I can't sleep. CBD doesn't work. Um, and, and it's all of these brands sort of shooting themselves in the foot by making claims that their products can't substantiate and then, you know, creating a system in which their consumer doesn't trust them. Um, so we said, all right, what does a formulation for sleep look like? Um, THC and CBD are two of one of at least 130 different cannabinoids found in the cannabis plant. Um, some experts believe there could be 200 or 300 cannabinoids. Um, we don't know. This is all so, so early because this is a federally illegal product that we can barely research properly. However, there are already 130 that we know of, and some of which have started to be researched pretty well. One of those is CBN cannabinol. CBN is a sedative cannabinoid. Um, it works when present or when in the presence of CBD and THC. And we said, great this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a formulation that emphasizes CBN and actually helps people sleep. Um, that took a lot longer than we thought. Um, one of the reasons CBD and THC are so popular um, is just because they're very easy to extract from the plant in high qualities and high quantities. Um, CBN and all of these other cannabinoids, like they're all in the plant. We haven't really figured out how to grow for um, varieties that have it in large amounts or how to extract um, the product in a way that, um, you know, is effective for the consumer. Um, we also knew that everyone was sourcing from the exact same, like two companies, um, and that we would have no point of differentiation unless we figured out an alternate source. Um, and we kept hearing, um, from everybody, we just said, who makes the best CBD? Who, who is like the best of the best of the best? And this one company kept coming up and their name is Ananda Hemp. They are the oldest producers of hemp derived cannabinoids in the country. And they've been doing it for 20 years, 20 years now, but they focus exclusively on pharmaceutical and medical grade products. Um, and so everyone kept saying Ananda, but you know, they don't do consumer. So we got to find someone else. Um, and we were like, okay, or maybe we can get Ananda to work with us. And so we were connected with their chief science officer, um, a woman named Dr. Alex Capano, who holds the first um, doc, first doctorate in comprehensive, comprehensive cannabinoid science in the country. Um, and the three of us really hit it off. You know, she loves working at Ananda. She's still there. She's now also our science advisor. Um, but she got really excited about doing something that could be consumer, consumer facing um, and have a wider reach and also have like a little bit more of a brand play. Um, and she was like, I can help you. I can do this. You know, I know how this works and I can work with Ananda on it. And we said to Ananda, like, we'll be public. You know, we will tell everyone that you guys are the best of the best. And that's where we're getting it. Because one thing David and I said is 
I, I don't want to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden have to convince people that like I started a con- like a hemp extraction facility and like an organic farm in California. <laughs> like that's not what I do. I don't know how to do that. The only thing I know how to do is research and um, ask questions and basically like report out who does know how to do that, do that and how can I get them to do it for me? Um, and that is where our formulation came. And Dawn, Dusk was our first product. Um, that was January, 2019. And we launched, you know, we cobbled together the cash we could for a initial PO of a thousand units. Um, we positioned it as limited edition because we genuinely had no idea if we'd be able to purchase it again um, or if it would sell or any of it. Um, and we sold through that first run in under three weeks. Um, and we sold that exclusively through our site. Um, we posted two Instagrams and sent one newsletter about it um, and sold the product. And that's where we said like, okay, we've done it. Like it's small, we're small, but like we have an audience that, trusts us you know we made something we genuinely stand behind um and i am so happy people are purchasing it and then from there it was just the feedback was immediate like it's life-changing i'm sleeping for the first time like i always thought cbd was garbage and like this really works for me um you know i think david and i because of our backgrounds in media we also understood like the press play you know because i know that part of this conversation is about how to build the business and we were launching a CBD product at probably what a time that was peak CBD and where like everybody was rolling their eyes and was like, I, if I see another CBD latte, like, you know, my eyeballs are going to fall out of my head and go bouncing down the street and into the Hudson river. Um, and so we just said, we're, we get it. We feel the exact same way, but here is truly genuinely authentically like why our product is different. All of these things are true. We also set this incredibly high bar for ourselves, right? Like we had just spent a year telling people how hard it was to make a really high quality product. So when we were making one, we were like, okay, shit, like it has got to check every fucking box that we have told people to check. Um, And I would argue that for any brand, that's a really, really good exercise to go through um, when you're making a product. Um, And it's something that we've also sort of, you know, taken into account with everything we do, which is like, do we need, do we need to make this product? What are we going to do that is different? And does, does it need to exist? Because I just feel like if it, if you can't say like a hundred percent yes to all of those things, um, it's not worth putting out in the world, especially when we are staring down the barrel of like global warming and, um, you know, like the sustainability, I mean, everything, it's just like, how do we make sure that everything we do is really, really truly worth it? Um, so it was 18 months before we launched a second product after that, that was just this summer. That is crazy. The development, like the style of development. I love the way that you approached, uh, building a product, which is for sure way different than most just knowing your backgrounds being yeah. far different. <laughs> I mean, we than didn't most. know how to do that. Yeah. It was like, we basically set out to like, in the same way we would like write a story to tell someone how to do it. We just had to learn it all and, you know, ask everyone and then figure out the steps for ourselves. You know, I I say all of this because I I know that part of the story here is also like how to build a business. Like we are still a small business. Um, You know, we, this method, this approach only works for us because we don't have investment. Um, 
because we don't have someone saying like, you need to be at this level by this year or this month. Otherwise, like, you know, you're not, your valuation is lower, you're, or you're not hitting your numbers. Um, and that's, that works for a lot of companies. And it, I think it works better in other sectors. Um, I think the, the sort of traditional VC approach to CPG, um, I think like consumer packaged goods, like I think we're starting to see that fallout that it, it's not a one-to-one, like you cannot just pump cash into a business um, and then hope at some point it's going to make it up unless you are truly building that business to be the biggest, unless you have like the timeline of Amazon where you're like, we are going to be number one. It is really, really, really hard. And what you end up seeing is businesses that then end up having to pump money into customer acquisition because they don't have a genuine organic audience who's actually purchasing. Um, and these numbers eventually come to roost and, and the businesses fail. And while I think I would say a hundred percent at some point we would take, you know, institutional investment in Gossamer in the future and who knows, could be sooner, could be later. It was very, very important to us that we at least grew the business on our own terms in an organic way so that whatever investment we took to do something faster or bigger was coming from a real place. Um, You know, one sort of thing I always point out because particularly with investment and particularly with like coverage of businesses um, and, and brands, I think hindsight is not 2020. Hindsight is like this long, like people can only look back and they, they see like one month's worth of history. And the thing I always point out with Glossier, for example, which, you know, I think a lot of people laud as this like incredible, you know, unicorn beauty business. Like, can you believe how quickly it's grown and, and what, Emily Weiss and the brand has accomplished in such a short time. Nobody ever, ever, ever talks about the fact that she did Into the Gloss without any investment for five years. That Into the Gloss community was built over five years, and then she took investment to launch Glossier. So the history of Glossier may be only X years old, but there was five years before that of groundwork laid. Um, And that, I think, is always really important for people to remember that, like, this shit doesn't happen overnight and you can't buy your way into that. Um, you know, a handful here and there can, and that's great. That's not the business I wanted to run. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think like the investment side of things makes such an interesting and weird dynamic where people get really good at spending a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> Hell, yeah. yeah, I just think it's so interesting. Well, it's also for founders, it, 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 I think it can... it it can trap them really quickly because the money doesn't feel real, right? Like it feels like there's just like endless money behind it. And I think the number one lesson that anyone should learn if they're interested in starting a business is like, what, how do you run a P and L like a profit loss sheet? Like how do you actually look at the numbers and say, we have this much coming in and therefore we have this much to spend. Yeah. Um, And you know, you asked me one of the lessons I learned from Huffington Post, one of the best lessons that I took from the dissolution of Lucky Magazine, which again was heart-wrenching and like to watch, you know, a hundred plus people lose their jobs over the course of 10 months is an excruciating, excruciating thing to do. But at a certain point I said, um, you know, to the powers of B, because powers that be, and I was overseeing the digital team, I said, I need to see the numbers. Like I need to see Lucky's PL because you're asking me to do things and I can't make these decisions without understanding exactly like how much money do we have? How long do I have? And I remember looking at that Excel sheet and like trying to um, <laughs> navigate it 
and my mind just being blown. Like the numbers I saw of like, you know, the money that was being spent on print photo shoots for big name photographers would just blow anyone's mind. And so you're looking at that. And I just, my takeaway was like, that's not sustainable. You can't spend that much in any one place if you don't have the money to make up for it somewhere else. And I think when you have venture capital funding in a business that has not, where the groundwork of like an actual functioning business has not been laid, that that's what you're setting yourself up for. You're setting yourself up for spending where the returns just are not there. Do you you feel like you've, over the course of launching the business, building products uh, and an audience that is interested in buying the products, do you feel like you've learned anything outside of that specific lesson, which was obviously super (laughs) valuable? Uh, Yeah. Do you feel like you've learned anything that you wish you would have known at the outset of doing this or that would have made the journey a little bit easier along the way? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, like you can be too cautious. Like, I think we really, really wanted to do it right. Um, And we did Dusk, our first product, and that sold incredibly well. And then we spent the next 18 months working on Dawn and just launched it. And that's selling incredibly well. Um, And I don't think I would actually change the approach at all. But I think now that I know, like I can trust my gut on like, I can make these financial decisions and take these financial risks because it's all a risk, right? Like you have to invest a lot of money into making a product and and branding a product and selling a product before any of that money comes back in. Um, I don't know if I would change anything of how we've done it, but I, I will say that, you know, seeing what a bad P&L looks like makes you really, really careful and say, I want to make sure we always have money in the bank. Um, and you should always have money in the bank. But I do think, you know, I've learned to trust my gut a little more and just say, like, I, I know this is going to work. Um, it's a lot easier to do that when you've got millions of dollars in the bank. It's hard to do it when it's like your own hard-earned cash. Um, some of the other things, I mean, I truly, genuinely listening to your readers or your customers. Um, one of the things I, I, I tell younger writers, um, or I used to, when I was leading an editorial team was like, if you're having a, if, if you're talking about something with your friends, there's something there. If you're thinking a thought, like there's something there, there's a story there. There's something that someone else wants to read. Like if, if you and a friend talked about it, there's at least one other person in the world that wants to hear it and probably a lot more. And, and paying attention to that sort of like intuition or, or moments of interest, um, it can be really difficult because those things are fleeting. Like they last a second, but sometimes the best stories like come out of that. Um, and, and that I think applies to reader and customer feedback too, because sometimes you just like, it comes in, you're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, they like this post or like, Oh, they said they like this or like they sent this email and then you like move on. But, but listening, like stopping and really listening to what someone is telling you and figuring out like, what does that mean? What are they actually trying to say? What is it about the product? What is it? What does this say about what they want might want from Gossamer? Like, what are we not doing based on this? Like taking that beat to really stop and listen and self-interrogate because I think, you know, when you run a brand or work at a brand or a publication, whatever it is, 
you know, you're in a little bit of a vacuum, right? Like you're just constantly saying like, this is what I want to do. This is what I believe our customer wants. This is what I believe our brand stands for. This is what I believe our brand should do. Um, None of that means anything if like it doesn't actually resonate with the customer. And I think everyone talks about listening to their readers and talks about listening to their customers. Um, But they're kind of like listening selectively. Like they're kind of saying like, this is what I want. And like, we're getting some feedback that says, yes, like, yeah, let's do it. But I think really stopping and gut checking and like constantly self-interrogating and saying like, are we really doing what people are asking for? Um, Which isn't to say like, be everything to everyone. But like within the framework of what we want to build, are we really delivering on that promise? Um, And what feedback are we getting that might tell us where we're falling short or where we could do more? Um, I think that is is really, really important. Um, You know, it's a form of like, it's a form of empathy. It's a form of this like other, you know, looking at things from another perspective, which goes back to the idea behind Gossamer in the first place. Like it's a willingness to like put yourself into someone else's shoes and say like, what do I actually want here? Um, And what do I want to give someone? And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. It's funny. I always think like back to my younger self. I mean, not even that long ago. Uh, And I always think like, I thought about business from the sense of like what I wanted to do. And then now looking back, it's like, it would be way easier if you just listened to what other people wanted and then shut your own mouth and do what people ask for. (laughs) And it's also more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's tough. It's tough to thread that needle, you know, because like you do want to feel like you're doing something that gets you excited. But I I think nothing makes me happier um, than when, you know, someone says like, can you help me with this? And we do. And sometimes that's totally out of our wheelhouse. Um, you know, we, one of the sign-offs we use on a lot of our emails, it's like, got anything you want to ask us? Like, it doesn't have to do with Gossamer. It, like, I don't care. It, could, it doesn't even have to do with weed. Like, feel free to reply to this email and ask us. And like, we'll help. Um, because I just want to be able to sort of have that conversation. You know, I think that's, there's probably like, a, a you know, a thread to be drawn between that and some of like, the customer service approaches that larger brands take like a Zappos or whatever, right? Like they're famous for like, you call their customer service and ask them anything and like, they will help you figure that out or get it for you or whatever. Um, you know, we don't have a customer service department, but like we have an email, we have an inbox. I promise you like hi at gossamer.co, like our public facing email, like David and I are the people checking it. Um, and Charlotte on our team, shout out to Charlotte. But like there is a human being, three human beings that read that email and respond to all of those emails. Um, and, and that's really important. Yeah, I love I love the sentiment. I I really respect the way that you guys have built a brand and want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and hopefully we can stay in touch as you guys build out the products uh and, yeah. and launch more more new things over the next uh year or so. Well, thank you for having me. I know I, I speak at length. <laughs> you give me one question and I just go for like 15 minutes. Um, so have fun editing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, and this was fun. Bread receipt. Bread receipt. Bread receipt.